The work hours for a professional working in athletics can fluctuate. That's why the University of Cincinnati Online designed a Master of Sports Administration program that is both flexible and 100% online. Connect and build relationships with other students, alumni working in athletics, and their experienced staff. The best part? You can graduate in as little as one year. Unsure about going back to school? UC Online has a team of student success coordinators ready to guide you from start to graduation. Reach out and learn more about UC Online today. This is the Work in Sports Podcast. Here's VP of Content and Engage Learning at WorkinSports.com, Brian Clapp. Many of us in the marketing and content creation world have been clutching our pearls lately as we look toward a future with AI as a massive threat to replace the voices we have carefully constructed. A Washington Post article posted last week with the catchy title, ChatGPT took their jobs, now they walk dogs and fix air conditioners, may have given me a bit of a fever dream as the nightmarish experience of paying for my kids' college by picking up dog poo overwhelmed my carefree weekends. I read the article, hoping it would make me feel better than the headline, and honestly, not much. Maybe a little? I don't know, not sure. Here's a quote. Experts say that even advanced AI doesn't match the writing skills of a human. It lacks personal voice and style, and it often churns out wrong, nonsensical, or biased answers. But for many companies, the cost-cutting is worth a drop in quality. Bump, bump, And there's the kicker. Problem number one that I see here is, do companies care about quality? Problem number two, AI might not be so great at facts or quality now, but what about in 10 years? (sighs) We can't answer number two. So I will continue to abide by my dude, Ernest Hemingway, who said, if there's a problem you face, solve it, but don't bother worrying because worrying fixes nothing. So. I'm going to continue to solve, quote-unquote, problem number two by continuing to learn and advance myself. I'm going to distribute my knowledge and skills so that I'm not over-indexing any one thing that could be replacement level, and I suggest you do the same. Continue to grow, be curious, learn, and expand. So that if one part of you gets replaced by AI, there are other parts of you that are still valuable in the world. But let's get back to that question number one, that problem number one. Do companies care about quality? Well, they should. Quality ensures you meet the expectations of consumers, helps you gain a competitive competitive advantage, builds a retention model when customers return to your product, develops trust and builds your brand value. And you know what? This isn't me talking. There's like a list of 10 different, 20 different, 30 different things that quality ensures. And that's from the Harvard Business Review. And those people are really smart. So I don't understand how companies could be willing to risk that as a cost-cutting move. We're willing to sacrifice quality in order to save a couple dollars. Well, I bet those companies willing to cut corners on quality will be spoken of in the same sentence as Sears, Blockbuster, Tower Records, Circuit City, Toys R Us, and others who failed to see the connection between the quality of their experience and product with their success. Sears, for those of you that don't remember it, was a magical place when I was a kid. I am older than you. Let's just get past that part. They had everything. It was welcoming and friendly and clean. Their toy section was legit. But I'm guessing somebody up top said, let's save a little bit on that cleaning bill. Let's not update our fixtures. Let's cut this and let's cut that. And for a short period of time, their balance seat sheet probably looked better. And then the next thing you know, a staple of our commerce is junk. That's the fall that happens when quality is compromised. Good companies, smart companies will always invest in and expect the highest quality products and experiences, not the easiest deliverable, the highest quality, because they know that ensures the future of their business. And any company that is willing to sacrifice quality to save a couple dollars has to be questioning their own future. And this is why I'm excited to talk today with Michael Buckland, SVP of Fox Sports Digital. Michael and his team are constantly building unique and valuable content that brings the audience back to Fox Sports over and over and over again. Their focus on quality is unwavering, and his insight into the future of our business is unparalleled. 
So let's dive in. This is a juicy one. Buckle up, seriously. Here's Michael Buckland. Hey, Michael. What's happening? Thanks for so much for joining me today. This is an exciting uh, conversation I'm very excited about. Thanks, Brian. Good to be here, man. As I was kind of joking around beforehand, I, I wrote so many questions in prep for this, and, and I'm not going to get to all of them today because we'd be here for hours, but I think there's so many different interesting avenues we can jump into. But let's start here. You were a walk-on at the University of Georgia basketball team. And yep. to me, I hear things like that. And it exudes like a certain confidence or self-belief that you had in yourself. Like that's a daunting thing. And a lot of people would self-censor and say, I'll never make it so I won't try. Or they talk themselves out of it or whatever. But you went for it and it happened and it became real. How has that trait, your your self-belief and your confidence carried through in your career and in this journey that you've been on in the digital media side of sports? Well, being a walk-on is definitely a mentality. It's funny. It probably doesn't start in a place of confidence. Because generally, by nature of being a walk-on, you are not as good as the scholarship players. Um, I think in my case, I love the game of basketball. I grew up in a basketball family. My father played and coached. My brother played, still coaches. My uncle played and coached. Several cousins played. We just loved the game. But I think the one thing we all had in common is none of us were 6'4", 230. Uh, I don't think any of us could dunk and none of us could shoot like Steph. So... I think that we still wanted to contribute. You still find a way to contribute. But, you know, part of being a, a walk-on is you have to show up every single day. Generally, you have to show up early, learn the other team's plays. Normally, you have to stay late, rebound for the best players. Yeah. Uh, and generally, you just realize, you know, you're kind of there to get beat up. You know, you're the scout team. I would get a rebound sometimes, and our coach, Jim Herrick, was a – national champion at UCLA, oh, yeah. stop practice and go, if you're going to let this little punk, this little 5'10 punk get a rebound, what are you going to do when you play against Kentucky? Yeah. Right? So you, you develop this mentality of um, you're getting beat up every day, but it's still your job to show up every single day and give it your best, even though you're going up against people that have twice the athletic ability as you. And uh, you got to get used to that. Um, so I don't think it starts with confidence, but I think when you show up every day, and you go up against people that have more tools in the tool belt and you, you know, you don't just survive, but you thrive. You, you figure out how to be smarter rather than more athletic. Um, I think those are all the things that benefit you over the course of your career. Yeah. You learn to show up every day. You learn to show up even when you're taking L's. You learn to show up even when you're getting beat up and you find new ways to win. Um, and so I, I'd like to think I still use that, that walk on mentality almost every day of my career. I love that. I've actually cited stories about J.J. Watt before, too. Oh, he started as a walk-on, and look at where he ended yep. up. You know, I think it's yeah. a mentality. I really do believe that. And I yeah. always had an attitude in the early parts of my career that I didn't go to one of those top, like, Syracuse-type schools that's perfect for broadcast journalism. Yeah. And others did. And maybe I didn't have as many great in in internships as other people did. But I got this job, and I got this opportunity, and I'm going to outwork everybody. And that yeah. always became my kind of competitive fire. And I I read that about you and just thought that's a that's a mentality to become a walk-on that's obviously worked into your career. So post-Georgia, yep. 2006, pretty dream job coming out of college to get a gig at ESPN. What do you remember about that process, that interview process, that first experience walking onto the campus at Bristol? Like, take us, take us through that memory a little bit. It wasn't intentional. It wasn't option one. It was, I wanted to be a coach. You know, again, I come from a family of coaches and that's what I wanted to do. It's the only thing I ever thought about doing. And, uh, you know, I'm about to go become a graduate assistant, which is sort of step one of being a coach. I was helping out at a local high school in Athens, Georgia. I was studying film. I was doing the camp circuit. I was doing everything you could to be a coach. That was option one. And there was no yeah. option two. You know, one of my, my family members and coaching pulls me aside one, one night and he says, uh, look, it's a lot of work. And the, and the coaching is changing. You know, you're, you're relying on these these 17 year old 18 year old kids it's not a lot of hours you're not gonna see your family you can be on the road a lot yeah um you kind of got to be right place right time you know it's not lucky necessarily but there's a lot of really good people who just don't make it in that world and said you know your your whole life has been fairly single track why don't you just look around and see what else is out there just so you mm -hmm. feel more confident if you end up getting into coaching you'll feel more confident that you looked around and I never thought about a second option. So I go to like a job fair and I'm applying for what I would call uninspiring jobs <laughs> for me personally. Yeah. Uh, I think I was going through the three. motions kind of. Yeah. I mean, I, I went to an interview to sell billboards on the side of the highways. Um, 
I went to interview with a company that sold Braves tickets in the suburbs of Atlanta, door to door. Yeah. I interviewed at Eli Lilly medical sales, just thinking, you know, look, obviously I have to get a job. Uh, not everyone gets, a but you're kind of hoping you don't get it. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I promise you I wasn't mailing it in, but I was yeah. kind of hoping something else would pop up its head. And if it didn't, I would get yeah. back to this, these coaching routes. And I had met a guy at a tournament who worked for EA sports. EA sports is a, a sponsor of a number of tournaments at the time. And we were from the same, our families were from the same small town in upper Michigan. And, and we stayed in touch yeah. and I shot him a note. Hey, his name is Brian Mogelson. I said, Brian, I, I'm, I'm considering a job outside of coaching. You know, you're in the corporate world. You work in sports in the corporate world. That yeah. sounds so awesome. So ideal. Do you have any op- opens at EA sports? He said, no, we don't, but we're starting a 15 year relationship with ESPN to sell ESPN branded video games. And as a, what, 18 year, what was I probably 21, 22 years old, yep. you know, about to graduate college, obsessed, amazing. With sports, obsessed with video games. So like yeah. this sounds like the greatest role. He goes, just take an interview. I, I don't think I ever asked him what the role was. I certainly didn't ask him what it paid. And I get a call from this guy from ESPN named Eric Sorensen. And he goes, first question, do you, do you like sports? I was like, easy, easy question. Love Got sports. This. Yeah. Second question, you like video games? Uh, I said, Am I allowed to say that? I, I love, yeah, I love yeah. video games. Not something that normally comes up on a job interview. He said, well, what games? I said, well, FIFA soccer and see football, Madden. He's like, great, because that's exactly what this job would be doing. And uh, I said, okay, amazing. Um, he said, do you actually have any skills? <laughs> at the, oh, like, that's a yeah, great question, gosh. huh? And at the time, um, just back, going back to that era was sort of the era where Bill Simmons, sports guy, was like blowing up on page two. Yeah. And I kind of, was obsessed as a fan with page two with Bill Simmons, the whole works. And so I, I had my father worked in computers a little bit. I taught myself HTML. I made myself a sports blog. Yeah. My friends wrote for it. Uh, gimmicky things. Like we had, uh, my friend wrote a column. It was like sports horoscopes. It was like, if you're a Gemini, your team's going to lose twice today. You know, just corny, <laughs> jokey, yeah, yeah, yeah. page two type stuff. I think we were all trying and, to follow that kind of Bill Simmons path back then for sure i was one of a million Um, yeah i I was too i was right there with you but you know uh at the time bill was very multimedia a lot of videos a lot of he'd linked to a lot of images a lot of videos um to help tell his story and i gotta learn this stuff so uh there was a a program at the time called limewire where you could pretty much download anything off the internet that you wanted and i downloaded photoshop and i downloaded final cut yeah. So very, very thankfully, when I was asked this question, do you have any skills? I was able to say, yes, I know HTML. I know how to write. I know how to edit. And I know how to make, I utilize Photoshop. And uh, Eric said, um, if you want the job, it's yours. It's based out of Connecticut, pays 30 grand a year. And um, it's a freelance job, so I can't guarantee you an end date. But we need your help getting this partnership off the ground. And if you're going to take it, we'd love you to take it. I was so excited. I don't know if I even asked what the job was. Yeah. Had a title like product integration specialist. And next thing I know, my mother and I are driving to Connecticut, which I'm not sure I even knew where it was on a map. (laughs) I just knew that I got excited for the first time about a job in sports. And I I took advantage of that and just got my foot in the door. Turns out it was pretty much the dream job for a 22-year-old kid coming out of college. Well, it was also a really interesting time in our industry from a broadcast sense, too, of and I know you were on a slightly different ESPN side of things at that time, but in yeah. 2006, you've got Facebook getting entrenched. You've got Twitter really right. coming on strong. Uh, all these things are starting to happen. And it felt like, because I remember the time really well, it felt like there was a sea change in the industry. Like we were going to yeah. deliver information and content differently from this point forward. Do you remember that that feeling? And did it did it resonate with you? And did that feel like a kind of a buzz inside of ESPN almost where it was like, this this linear broadcast world is getting is 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 maturing is changing. We're going to have other avenues happening here. Do you remember that feeling, or was it later when this kind of started to happen? You know, when when it first started, it in my memory at least at that time, everyone was using Facebook, but it was just to connect with buddies. Right. You know, there was no. I think maybe photos were out. I don't even know if there was video at the time. Yeah. So I can't say I look back at that time and think that I foresaw this huge change in the landscape. I wish I could say I did. At the time, you know, the, the website business was still booming. I'm not even sure we were fully into the app world at that time. Yeah. Maybe we just started to get into it. But 
we were, you know, to me at the time, ESPN.com was still this incredible opportunity, incredible business to be part of. And, you know, when I would create content with EA Sports, you know, my, my job was to create content with them for, for ESPN and to make their games look like ESPN broadcasts. Yeah. I would create simulations, outcomes of games as part of our analysis of a game. So Ohio State, Michigan, number one and two in the country, Troy Smith at quarterback. I can't remember, maybe Chad Henney on the other side, but Sounds you know, right. yeah. I would go in there and simulate the game in NCAA football, get someone like Chris Fowler to voice it and create this content. Yeah. And at first I was making this for the website and maybe I'd make it and make it available to SportsCenter to run. But then all of a sudden there was this option to share that on social media and you could reach more fans. Those fans could publicly engage with it. Yeah. They would respond to that content and say they liked it or share it with their friends or disagree with the results or you name it. And it felt like incremental. It didn't feel like it was going to replace anything at the time. It just felt entirely incremental. And the more we did with EA, the more we realized that this young demographic that plays video games is the same young demographic that loves sports, is the same young demographic that's using social media. Um, and so it, it kind of all came together for us. And we never looked at it as one versus the other. I wish we had foreseen the disruption that it would cause. Yeah. We just looked at it as one big cross-platform initiative. Yep. Take a piece of content, put it on linear and one New format, distribution channel. put it on social. Yeah. Yep. Um, and so we, that's how we saw it, just an extra way to reach more fans and specifically the types of fans that would love that type of content. Well, I mean, for your own career too, social kept growing and then you became producer of social production, strategizing the voice for Sports Center, Sports Nation, First Take. There was a lot of noise in that time too. There were a lot of competing voices, a lot of discovering what resonates, what works. Uh, what yeah. was that early kind of content strategy as you approached that social voice and knew that it's kind of a different persona? You know, you're talking to people yeah. a little differently than those that watch the Sports Center on repeat. How did you approach that audience? How did you guys kind of figure out we need to put ESPN and all of these our, our, our shows and their voices out there on the social channels and really make our mark? Well, it was definitely Wild West at the time. And I think yeah. anyone at the time who had a email address that aligned with their company, so whether it's, you know, for me at the time, it was at ESPN.com or at FoxSports.com or wherever you might work, yep. you had the ability to open up a social account for that company. And since it was so Wild West, you know, you had show producers are doing it for their shows. You know, you had digital people doing it. You had marketing people doing it. You had salespeople yeah. doing it. You had talent doing it. And I'll never exactly know how this went down. I was probably too young in my career and too naive in general. But uh, this one day, you know, we, to this day, we refer to this moment as like the day the Bobs came to town and the Bobs being like the Bobs from Office Space. I'm Bob Slidell. This is my associate, Bob Porter. Hi, Bob. Bob. These consultants came in and <laughs> going around, they're asking everybody like, hey, what's the social media be? Like, what's your the strategy be? Yeah. And one of my colleagues on the linear side, uh, Gabe Goodwin, absolutely one of the best producers, um, in, I think in sports TV history, we talk a lot and say... You know, it's just another way to serve fans. That's what it is. It's yeah. it's serving fans. It's is it also marketing? Yes. Will it also monetize? Yes. Can it also drive referral traffic back to your, you know, website or other priorities? Of course it can. But it starts by engaging fans. At the time, we don't say this a lot anymore, but it was an earned media platform. Yep. You earned media by getting people to engage with the media, and therefore it had to be good. Yeah. You know, and we'd ask people all the time, like, "Hey, we're not disagreeing. It can drive a rating." Potentially, but you can't really prove that. And also, when's the last time you tuned in with something that said tune in at four? Right. Now, you, you tune in with content. You don't tune in with marketing necessarily, but marketing can be integrated into the into the content. So we pitched this idea of instead of calling it like a social team or a social marketing team, of calling it a social production team. Yeah. And uh, I, I guess at least some of the Bobs agreed and Next thing you know, this wild west of social media at the company was kind of consolidated into probably two or three groups. And we essentially ran all the show and sports accounts at the time, uh, which allowed us to develop the voice or at least extend the voice from shows like Sports Nation, Sports Center, College Game Day, yeah. but also sports like NBA on ESPN or NFL on ESPN, um, which worked across a variety of studio shows that supported those. So that's how it all came together. Uh, and it came together with this focus on being truly content first, engaging first uh, with the ability to monetize and promote sort of the secondary tertiary factors. Yeah, which makes so much sense is you're creating for that specific channel. 
It's not yeah. just pulling things from the linear experience and posting them again. It's creating for social. And that was a massive sea change because it used to just be like recycling. And then it was actually creating on those for those platforms, which is genius. If I recall, Brian, you couldn't even upload videos at the time. It had to be shot from the phone, from the platform. Yeah. So nowadays we have the option to clip from a show. Yeah. I bet you early on with a lot of those shows I, I just mentioned, there wasn't a single video from the show on those handles because it had yeah. to be originally shot by the cell phone. Yep. Yep. So, okay. 2016, you make the move to Fox Sports as a coordinating yep. producer uh, in charge of cross, cross-platform content. What yeah. were you doing in the day-to-day? What did that look like and why make that move? I mean, that's it. You're in a, you're in ESPN for a long time. Things are, I'm assuming going well. Why, yeah. why make this jump? Oh, and I loved it. I, I loved my time there and I loved my colleagues there. I love my bosses yeah. there. Um, 10 years was a long time. 10 years was a long time. I felt like I got my education, uh, from some of the best in the business, so to speak. But personally, it's such a big company. It's an amazing machine. Um, but I think most people would, would also accept that when you're at an enormous institution like that, you're a cog in that machine. Oh yeah. Fox sports is a much smaller place, much smaller yet with these huge, huge broadcast rights, these huge personalities that we put on air, um, just, but operates as a smaller team. And there's an opportunity to come to a place that operates, you know, a little bit smaller of a roster and play a larger role in the business. And that was exciting to me. The idea of, Going from a place where, you know, I felt like a leader, but definitely a cog in a, in a, in a great large machine, uh, a very impressive machine. Yeah. But to go somewhere where I could sort of lead from scratch and help build from scratch was something that was very appealing to me. And also just 10 years in one place is a long time. It really is. Nice I know exactly of what you mean. Uh, so <laughs> uh, <laughs> as somebody who's jumped around about every seven years, I fully understand that. Yeah. that uh, a couple of year, multi-year itch. Uh, okay, so... You mentioned leadership a little bit there. Yeah. When you go from individual contributor to a CP or a managerial role or something like that, that's a that's a pretty big challenge to go from, I know exactly what's expected of me to be creative, to create content, to produce, to get data back in, to analyze it, to do something with it. Those yeah. individual contributor roles can be pretty easily explained. But when you yep. start to make that managerial push, that's a pretty big jump. Uh, what were the big eye-opening moments for you as you became and more of a leader and took on more leadership responsibilities. And how did you kind of figure out your style? Well, I think it goes back to something I told you earlier. I came from a, a family of basketball coaches. So, you know, leadership is, is really something that we would talk about on family vacations around the dinner table. And there's so much crossover and things I learned in the coaching world. Sometimes I feel like these coaches, they're like, they're like walking sound bites. You just hit a button on their shoulder and these like amazing leadership sound bites come out. Yeah. Like, you know, never ask anyone to do something you wouldn't do yourself or haven't done yourself. Or a player coach team is a lot better than a coach coach team. I learned these things a long time ago. And all of a sudden, you know, you're in these leadership positions and you get to put these learnings to test. And I've always liked it. I've always been a big reader of leadership books. I've always been connected to other leaders in the industry and we love trading best practices. Um, I like working with my own senior staff and leaders on my team about leadership, about custom styles and approaches with different types of employees in different areas of the company. Everyone's different, but I wanted to be a leader that was in it with my team. You know, I didn't want to lead from, I'll, I'll say the air, air conditioned press box. I, you know, I wanted to be down on the field with them yeah. still to this day. I was in Birmingham this past weekend. I love getting down there with my producers. I love shooting content. I love making content. I love seeing early editions of edits. I love hearing about process. I like, you know, tinkering and, and improving, but I would much rather be in a position where I'm sitting there side by side with, with colleagues and, and, and giving them the support they need. And, and also I think part of leadership is you accept that when it's time to take the blame, you have to shoulder that blame. And when it's time to take credit, you have to, to, to distribute that credit. Yep. And, you know, these are things that I, you know, I'm certainly not, uh, breaking ground on new concepts here. You know, these are things that I, that I, I think are pretty tried and true, but it's actually the process of showing up every single day and implementing these and seeing these through and truly working with people to develop them. You know, I'm, I'm passionate about that and, and, and showing up every day is really important to me and, and sort of being in the mix with people is important to me so that if I ask them to do something, they know it's it's not me screaming from you know the ivory tower. It's it's me standing there next to them, and it's it's something I believe in, and it's something I want done. And and I I feel like they better feel and understand that because I'm there with them. 
in your role now as uh, well, I mean, less than a year later after being CP, you moved it, made the jump to VP status, and now you're senior VP, so you're big time. The higher you climb, I've always felt like your soft skills become so much more important. And we're talking yeah. a lot about leadership, and that's obviously an important one. But even yeah. just time management and teamwork and knowing where to allocate your priorities and how to kind of divide up your time. You have so many different things that become important in the role that you're in now. How do you even yeah. decide where to best spend your time? And then also how to build that team around you so you don't have to be everywhere. Yeah. One of the things that, that I found to be difficult, candidly, is you, you almost have to be a bit draconian in your prioritization. You know, you have to be um, aggressive in protecting your time and keeping your time focused on the most impactful parts of your business. And so for me, you know, this company, we're a championship live events company. You know, we had the Super Bowl, we had the World Cup, we had the World Series. You know, I need to be hyper-focused on making sure that these events and the way we support these events are bigger than anything else that I do. Mm-hmm. You know, we have marquee talent here. You know, we, we have talent that are household names. I need to make sure that as a leader, I'm supporting these talent, these huge investments by our company um, the most I can. Um, We have awesome league rights, whether it's NFL, Major League Baseball, you know, Big Ten football. I need to make sure that my focus is there. Um, That doesn't mean that you can necessarily ignore things that aren't tip top priorities. But I will say that across the board, in order to ensure that you're able to maintain that focus, you need to make sure that uh, things run smoothly. Because when things break, it tends to take your time. Yeah. You need to make sure people feel empowered because the more empowered they are, the less of your time as a manager You need to make sure that you're setting clear goals so that they, even if they fail, are failing in the direction of those goals. And I think that, like, you know, you need to put your money where your mouth is. Your time, the meetings that you take, the the budget that you spend, the areas that you fight for more resources need to be in line with with following those priorities. So focusing on priorities has been a big, big change for me. And I will admit that it's been a struggle at times. Also, we're not necessarily an everything company. You know, we're not a site of record necessarily. We're probably not the place, we're being honest with you, that you're going to turn for Olympics coverage or hockey coverage. But we definitely want to be the place where you turn for the Cowboys and the Packers and the Yankees and the Red Sox and Ohio State and Michigan. So um, that prioritization, I have found that as you grow, it becomes more and more important. In addition to your priorities, it's developing people who can take a lot of that burden as well and, and empowering them. Uh, to lead their respective teams. Um, again, you know, you're, you're, when, you, when you're working with these people, you're trying to help them stay as focused as you're staying, and you're really trying to focus on scalable solutions. You don't want to be having conversations about one-off issues. You want to have conversations about scaled answers to a million issues. Yep. Um, so those are some of the things that I've struggled with and had to learn as I've grown in, in order to, to stay focused on, on the priorities. I love that. It's a very in-depth answer, and I think it's it's so spot on. Um, there's so many different points you touched on in there that we can expand upon. One of the things I think about a lot, and I know our audience does too, is what are those proper things that they should be developing to stand yeah. out in the marketplace, to grab the attention of a hiring manager, to get that opportunity to get their foot in the door. And sure. you talked about it early on when you were trying to get your first role at ESPN and you were asked about your specific skills and you were able to list those things off. And it struck me in my my head that the, I got my job at CNN Sports Illustrated for the exact same reasons that you list, listed. Mm-hmm. I knew nonlinear editing and I knew Photoshop and that was what they needed at the time. So I had those right. tangible skills. Yeah. But we also have this thought process of like all those soft skills or experiences. Yeah. When you're building a team, and it's not just the new people you're hiring, but those people you're promoting, the people that you're giving opportunities for, what are you looking for? What stands out? And, and when it's those newer hires, when it's those entry-level people, you might get a stack of 500 resumes coming in for an applicant for a job opening. You're not going through all yeah. 500, and no HR team is, but what are you looking for? What are those kind of North Star moments that you're like, this person stands out and I want to talk to them more? Yeah, I think what you're looking for is you're looking for solutions to your needs or, or ways that someone could help you with a big opportunity. So when I first got started here, we were a tiny little team of like 24. I needed people that could do everything. There's a saying in our industry that I'm sure you're familiar with in production. You know, you're looking for predators, and that's not in sort of the uh, the lethal sense uh, that, right. that is in the 
It's not Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah. Uh, producer, editor, together as a predator. Yep. You know, I think that in the digital space, it's more than predators. It's producer, editor. It's probably someone who can design a little bit. It's probably someone who can direct a little bit. It's probably someone who can write a little bit. And so we would refer to them as five tool players. We almost exclusively hired five tool players. Today, you know, we've grown from a little team of 24 to, you know, you include you seasonal freelancers, you include talent. I think we're closer to a team of 160. We don't hire any five tool players. Now we hire specialists. Yeah. So I think that if you're someone who's looking to work at a company, you need to kind of look at them and analyze their needs and look for the opportunities of what they might need. And you should absolutely be okay. Do your homework, but ask like, Hey, I've noticed that you're growing in this space. Would you by chance need help in this area? These are my services and expertise and skills in this area, examples of my work. And I think by showing that you did your homework and showing that you're listening and showing that you're synthesizing a little bit and yep. you're, you're sort of making some, some educated guesses on what they might need, you're going to come across as smarter. And if you have something that can help them, they're going to have a higher likely chance of spending the time to talk to you. Because most people are trying to solve needs. Yes. And I, I think that you hear a lot, someone goes, hey, do you have any roles across any part of your team? It's kind of a bad open because that tells me you're not great at any one thing. Even if you might be, you've now presented yourself as a generalist. And for me, at this time in our growth, that's not a value. So I think you got to do a little bit of homework and figure out what does the person need that you're you know, applying for. I am so happy you said this. Okay, so I'm going to give a little <laughs> bit of context here. Yeah. I have asked that question, similar type of questions. I mean, we've been doing this show for five years now. I've interviewed over 300 people across the industry. When oh, wow. I ask people what they're looking for, most of yeah. the time people will say, I want somebody with work ethic and I want somebody with passion and blah, except <laughs> not blah, blah, blah. All that stuff is important. Yeah. We know it. Yeah. But that doesn't come through on a resume. That doesn't come through on a, on a cover letter. And if I'm looking at a stack of 100 people, somebody saying, I really care, does, doesn't move the needle for me. I need them to be able to do things and solve problems at my organization. So yeah. I've been preaching to people for years, you need to go look at the job descriptions that interest you and put together a spreadsheet of all the skills they're saying they need and then map yeah. yourself to those skills, period. So Amen. thank you, yeah. Michael. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, I think all that stuff is also fair. So do it I. just doesn't come first. I do too. You know? I think that comes through in the interview. Yeah, right. Exactly. Like, so, yeah. so somebody has, if I look at their resume and they have the exact skill set that I'm looking for, I'm interested. And then when I meet with yeah. them and we have a conversation and they're able to make all the other stuff come to life on their soft skills, now I'm sold. Like that's the totally. full package. Yeah. Cause I think once you see the hard skills, um, say you have two designers and they send you stuff and you look at the two subjective differences between the two, but you have a conversation with them. And one has a super passion for sports. Yeah. And the other doesn't, or one, Seems like the type of person that you want to be in the trenches with. Yep. The other doesn't. Right. One person says, hey, look, like, you know, um, I kind of have these other outside interests, you know, interests going on, you know, I could use some flexibility. And the other person's like, I'm all in. Like, you know, these are all tertiary factors. The yeah. They're going to they're gonna break ties. So, um, exactly. so yeah, starts Love with that. solving a problem. And there's another thing that we don't talk a lot about. I feel like it's, it, I don't know why this doesn't lead more decisions, but we're still just looking for people who are really, really good. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's a good starting point too. (laughs) (laughs) You're passionate, but you're not very good. Well, you know, that can only go so far. It's like, (laughs) I had a, I had a boss once who told me that you, you look for people who are high will and high skill, and that might only be 10% of the people that come in through your door, but those are the people you hire right in the moment. You don't even wait. Like if they have the skill and the will, that's it. And most yeah. people will fall somewhere in the middle. They have one or the other. And right. you have to determine what your, your workflow needs, whether it's a skill level and, or whether you need the right attitude. But yeah. those people that have both, like just, just hire them tomorrow. And that's stuck in my mind forever. It's like, they got to have that skill set to make a difference here. I, I feel like where I came from, you know, as a walk-on example, like I love a good walk-on. They work their butts off. They're going to do yeah. all the dirty work. I can't have a team of walk-ons. I need some stars. You, know? you need some stars. I can't yeah. have a whole team of Rudy's. I need, I need a quarterback that can sling it, you know. Yeah, 100%. Uh, 300 yards a game. So I always joke about that Jimmy Johnson story where he would have a team meeting with the Cowboys. And if some, you know, 53rd guy on the roster fell asleep, he'd cut him right there and make a big scene yeah. about it and throw him out. And if Troy Aikman fell asleep, he'd walk over and be like, can I get you a pillow, Troy? You know, oh like my gosh, you, yeah. you need to, you have stars. You need to still have stars. That's so funny. I, I was, uh, I was working, I think it was on game day in Mac, Mac Brown, uh, you know, University of Texas legendary coach. Yeah. He told a story 
someone asked him about his leadership style. And he said, I tell you what, the bus leaves at five. And if you're not there at five, you're not suiting for that game. But if Vince Young gets there at 510, the bus leaves at 510. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're right. It's like, let's be real here. You know, like you have to, be, it goes back to authenticity too. It's like, nobody's going to believe you if you say that Vince Young isn't getting on that bus. Yeah. It's got to make sense too. I had a guest recently who stressed the importance of failing. They talked often about like you, is that is your main way of growing is that you have yeah. to be willing to stick your neck out there and take a chance and try things and be okay with failure as long as you follow up with, why did it fail and how do I improve moving forward? Yep. Uh, have you ever had any, does that, does that strike a, a, a tone with you? Have you ever had any failures or, or opportunities to really stick yourself out there that you were able to, to learn from and grow from? Oh my gosh, countless. I don't even know where to start. I, I think probably the biggest one that everyone who came up in social media will relate to, you know, if, if parts of your audience have experienced in social media, they'll know that, you know, you've never been fired for a tweet you didn't send. Yeah. Um, but you can get in a lot of trouble if your uh, measurement of risk versus reward is perhaps off. <laughs> you and, stated that very nicely. Uh, I think that early on in the social space, we weren't very understood by management, not, not understood by a lot of people, to be fair. And we probably got away with, with murder at the time when it came to brand voice, when it came to decision making, because there just wasn't a lot of eyeballs on it. Yeah. Um, and then one day those eyeballs came and it generally came through the way of people on the internet seeing stuff we, we, we did or wrote um, and reacting a certain way to it. And, you know, today, I mean, you could be Picasso and, and people are still going to think that your content, you know, something's wrong with it, you oh, know, yeah. that 25 things are wrong with it. But, you know, generally social media teams, at least early on, were very young, a lot of non-seasoned, um, a lot of people green to the business that are just trying to get, just trying to experiment and trying to serve fans and, and maybe didn't know where all those uh, blind spots were. So a lot early on, I feel like it was almost every week I was meeting with management about a bad tweet that went out. <laughs> if I could go back, I would have relearned risk reward at the time and better explain that to my, to my teams. <laughs> but I think what you learn from that, when you put out enough bad tweets, tweets, you think to yourself, how did we ever think this was smart? And you, you learn early on, you have to, that, that content is a brave activity that yeah. in order to entertain people, sometimes you have to shock and delight people. Sometimes you have to awe people. Sometimes you, it's not easy. It's, it's brave. And sometimes it just doesn't work. And sometimes it's read differently than you wrote it. And sometimes the tone is off and sometimes the brand is off. But I learned early on that we need to be a team. And when someone on the team makes a mistake as the leader, we need to protect them and give them the freedom to continue to make mistakes in the content world, or they'll show up and they won't be able to serve fans and vice versa. When the team, you know, when, when the team does a great job, you need to be very quick to give them that, um, that reassurement that they're doing a good job because it's, it's, it's hard and it requires being brave and it requires putting yourself out there. And when it goes South, I think that as a leader, you have to be there to help them and remind them that it's going to go South. It's, the road bump is uh, an expectation, not a surprise. And you got to show up every day expecting if you're doing it the right way, you're going to make some mistakes and, and you need to know that you have your leadership's backing. So making so many mistakes, I mean, every single mistake that's humanly possible, they learn that you, you still have to protect your team so they can stay creative. It, it's such a great point. I've, I've talked with our team a lot about like creating content is, is a very vulnerable experience. Yeah. You're really putting yourself out there to be judged. And like you said, yeah. Picasso nowadays would be criticized on Twitter by somebody with yep. five followers. Like it's just, it's yep. just, it's an unfortunate part of it, but you can't yeah. let that put you in the shell. So I think that's a really great example of your leadership style too. I think that's so important. Let's dive into the digital content side now that we're living in. Sure. Uh, we have a lot of aspiring content creators in our audience, so I think this will resonate. When I was first coming up in the industry, we had one data point, Nielsen ratings, right? And that was all <laughs> yeah. we'd look at. We'd get the book of Nielsen yeah. ratings, and we'd try to extrapolate that into real knowledge, which was so mm. frustrating because it wasn't really enough. Yeah. In the digital content world, how and how much does the available data influence your programming decisions and the directions that you guys go? It's huge. You know, we call ourselves data directional. You know, we're not necessarily 100% data driven, but we want the data to point us in the right direction. And the, we, the reason we say directional, and, and we, we do prefer the word directional, is because the data is not always right. Yeah. 
you know, a view is not necessarily good if it's not consistent with your brand. A view is not necessarily good if it's a half second view versus a 10 minute view. We used to think engagement was very important. So engagement would be someone shares your article or shares your video or they text it to a friend or they comment on it or reshare it or regram it. But nowadays people hit the like buttons so ephemerally that you don't even remember the 45 things you liked yesterday. So, you know, we're evolving our understanding, uh, at least uh, of, of what quality data looks like. I happen to think that time spent viewing is very important, but that doesn't mean I should make a piece of content longer just to increase the, the TSV. So, you know, getting them to come back and retain is important. So the way that we try to think about this, and it's so simple and it's maybe a little cliche, it's the three R's, it's ratings, it's relevance, and it's revenue. You know, a piece of amazing content that has no ROI to your business. It's a great piece of content, but it doesn't necessarily make money. And therefore, it doesn't pay the bills for this laptop that I'm on or the cell phone that's in my pocket or this desk that I'm sitting in or the travel to the game that I got to go to. So, you know, for us, we need ratings and, and that can come in the form of views, time of viewing, engagement, downloads, you name it. We need revenue. Uh, but I also think that in such a cluttered world with endless amounts of options, with endless platforms, endless formats, you need relevance. You need things that break through. And I find that the relevance part is one of the most difficult. Yeah. It's one of the most difficult because you're trying to cut through. And when I see shows or when I see products or I see you know brands that they're cut through regularly, I'm, I think I'm always most impressed by that. And I don't know how to measure that. Yeah. But I know it when I see it. I think that's fascinating too. And it actually perfectly dovetails into my next question because it was right in that lane. I find the same thing fascinating. I've been in the content creation world for a long time now and I'll see mm-hmm. something pop up and I'm like, that's so simple and so effective and it yeah. worked and I'm so mad that I didn't think of it. You know, it's like, it's so yeah. complex sometimes and so simple other times. And you're just like, man, this world is a tricky one. Yeah, uh, the Titan schedule release. Oh my gosh, that's the perfect example. This one is the Red Stallions. Ah. Total genius, but not like complex. It's not nuanced. I've never seen a metric on it, and I don't know. You know, I just know that everyone saw it, and I know that we're talking about it. Everybody shared it. Everybody talked about it. On that same exact uh, front, I was listening the other day to... I'm from Boston, so I was listening to a Patriots-related podcast from the, from the New England Patriots creative team. And they were saying that their their video, their scheduled release video, that they had the production with, they had all the retired players, Tom Brady shows up at the end. They showed a week later a five-second clip of their first-round draft pick, and it did 10x the views. You know, so like, you do this massive production, and it's super creative, and it's fun, and then you sit back and you're like, it didn't do nearly as well as that five-second clip that everybody had on loop for the last hour or whatever. I don't know. It's just so hard. You got to do it all. I feel like yeah. you have to have the things you plan and invest in, and you also have to be ready to take advantage of um, an opportunity that presents itself. And, you know, I, I have the good fortune of working with uh, Kevin Jackson, who used to lead ESPN at Combat in the day, page two. He was the editor to Hunter Thompson and uh, Wright Thompson and Bill Simmons and countless other amazing uh, writers, some of the best writers yeah. to ever write. And he jokes, he's like, the worst is when you spend an entire month on a story. And then the water skiing squirrel does better traffic. Yes. And you have to have it all. <laughs> yeah, you do. You do. You have to have it all. Is that what yeah. you'd say the content strategy is now? Like, I mean, how do you how do you stay creative and cutting edge? And how do you know, how much do you gauge like staying on trend or whatever versus deeper journalism or trying to really get in, to, into a well-crafted story? Like, Well, so like on the linear side, I can tell you that our linear team's priority is to be the most watched live event per, uh, platform. And Generally, I think they win that like every year. Like, yeah. More people watch more live events on Fox if it's one than any other um, any other brand's you know collection of of television channels. We can't say that yet. We're growing. You know, we tend to win in categories like time spent viewing, but you know, we know that we're climbing the leaderboard, and we're excited by it, and we're competitive about it, and we're climbing as fast and strategically as we can. But as we climb, you know, we know that we have to differentiate, you know, uh, in our industry, we kind of have this belief that inertia is high, loyalty is low. People are willing to switch, but they have their habits. And so if we're going to get people to switch their habits, we need to do things that grab their attention and are inherently different because we copycat everyone else. We're, you know, poor man's whatever they are. 
So we try to do things that are different. And one of the things we do that's different is we try to use our IP or our licensed IP almost exclusively. I mean, that doesn't mean we don't do a little UGC now and again. You know, if something's fun and it's on brand for us, we'll do it. But generally, if you go to our website, if you go to our app, you're going to see things that we, Fox Sports, created. Yeah. Now, there could be some embeds here to help, you know, provide extra complimentary coverage to a story. There could be a quote from someone else that, again, rounds out a story or rounds out a piece of content. But by and large, you're going to see our names on bylines of our writers, of our personalities. You're going to see our Fox faces on our videos and the events that you see, you know, the B-roll or the highlights and the compilations you see by and large are going to be Fox produced events. So by focusing on our IP or our licensed rights, we inherently feel like we're differentiated. So perhaps it's a bad example to talk about the water uh, skiing squirrel because we're not going to have a lot of water skiing squirrel. (laughs) No, you don't. (laughs) You know, like in the USFL the other day, Case Cook has lost his wedding ring on the football field. And that's, not a highly X's and O's moment, but our fans like it. It has crossover appeal. You don't need to know who he is, or you don't have to be a huge fan of the USFL. That's a story that a lot of people think is funny and interesting. So that's not exactly something that we were planning for. That's not something we expected. That's something not something we put a month into, but we still need to cover it. And so, you know, we're certainly trying to diversify our bets. Uh, we're just trying to focus them around RIP uh, and yeah. the events that we cover. Which is makes complete sense. Uh, how do you evaluate and adjust when new opportunities come up? I mean, five years ago, everybody's pushing podcasts, you know, then it's like the shorter video, we're going to do shorts and it's NFTs and it's this and it's that. It feels like we are in a world and the digital content side of shiny object, chase it, you know? And and so (laughs) how do you as a large, I mean, you're not uh, some little blog that has to try everything to get noticed. You're Fox Sports. So yeah, you, I'm guessing you take a much more pragmatic approach to new opportunities, but what is that strategy? Do you, do you ease into things? Do you just go hard after them? Do you carve your own path? What's that, what's that angle? It's a great question. I, I don't know if there's a single way to do it, but I can tell you that there's certain areas where we do an enormous amount of research and we decide we're going to get into this area. You know, yeah. Gambling would be a great example of that. We're going to get into this area. Great we're going to go yeah. big. This aligns with our priorities. We're a live event company. People gamble on the events that are on our broadcast. This makes sense for us. Yeah. By the way, perfect integration. Looking to give people more reason to watch. Yeah. Uh, gambling is a fantastic reason to watch a game. That's a seven point game. If the line's seven and a half, so yeah, you know that just works for us. That makes a lot of sense for us. There's other areas that maybe we're you know we we sort of put our toe in the water and we see if it's effective, or we take sort of a measured bet. Uh, and we try to be self-aware and honest. Does it work? Does it not work? If it does, double down. If it doesn't, let's ask ourselves, did we do something wrong or do we need to retreat? But, you know, it's, it, I, I think that our job is right far more often than we're wrong. So whatever it takes to be, uh, you know, as accurate as possible in these predictions, you know, whether it's research, whether it's testing the waters, like we want to have a little bit of everything. Yeah. Well, I like that. I mean, we have a, I have a much smaller team than you do, but we're always telling, I'm always telling our team, like, don't ride the roller coaster. Like we're going to do shorts this week. Then we're going to do long form next week. And then we're going to do this. We're all over the place. Like let's be a little bit more thoughtful in the process and understand whether it fits our market and et cetera. So I think that's, that's an important part of it because it can get so easy to get distracted. You mentioned uh, talent earlier. You're the Fox sports brand. You have big talent, but you also have smaller talent too. You also have people that you've found in different ways I I was laughing to myself as I was thinking about this. The the ideal for people who want to be an on-air talent used to be you start out in Pocatello, Idaho. You do some, (laughs) you know, you do some one-man gang, one-man show stuff there. Then you work in rodeos. Then you go to Champaign, Illinois. Maybe you get to cover some Big Ten. You end up in Salt Lake City for a couple years. You're just slowly climbing this ladder. And then maybe ESPN calls one day or something. Yeah, sure. Fox Sports. Or Fox Sports comes comes looking for you. Now you're probably mining for talent in completely different ways. You're probably looking at Twitch and other things. So what is that process like for you now as you try to uncover the right next voices that can be out there representing the the Fox name? Yeah, we're we're actually fairly defined in this and how we think about it because there are buckets that, that we've had success with and that we're interested in. I mean, one of the biggest ones is you have all these legendary characters that have already gotten into the space, but perhaps aren't new to the digital space. One of my favorites, I grew up in Atlanta, you know, number 29, John Smoltz. Yeah. Uh, when I first got put in touch with John and we got some digital added to his deal, he said to me straight up, like, shouldn't be honest with you, like, I'm not digitally savvy, technically yeah. savvy. He didn't necessarily, even at the time, feel comfortable, you know, going live, 
from his home. So we flew a producer in and set up a, a, you know, a computer with a nice, uh, internet at his golf club. Cause he's already there every day. And it's a much more <laughs> So Get where know, they are. To bring someone like John Smoltz, legendary voice, yeah. hall of famer, the, you know, lead in our booth on, on, uh, MLB on Fox and bring him to the digital world. That's a fantastic model for us. Yeah. He doesn't have to carry it. He doesn't have to be the, he, he has to come on, tell stories. He has you to be John Smoltz. Right. Yeah. And which is the best position you can be in. So that's one way we do it is we look at the legends that are already on the roster and it's like, how can we better work with them? Which is very aligned with everything we do. We want to create extensions from our top bets as a company in the digital space, first and foremost. The second thing we're going to do is there's going to be you know, people who took the, the traditional route and perhaps were in Idaho uh, that have worked their way up through the system. Yeah. And we have, we have many folks like that at this company who have sort of hit the top and if we have a chance to work with some of our top journalists, like a Tom Rinaldi, who yep. did a podcast this year for us called Wesley that won a whole bunch of awards and climbed the charts to the number one spot in all sports, of course you want to work with Tom Rinaldi. Yeah. And I don't know. I used to work with Tom. Guy. He's a pretty yeah. amazing guy. Yeah. He's like unanimously the most loved person I've ever met. So that's another route, right? Is, is you have the, some of the journalists. But the other one that's, that's emerging is people who are coming natively from the internet. And we have this amazing data scientist team that's able to go look at names. We give them a whole bunch of names. They can tell us what's the organic conversation about them on a platform like Reddit. You know, wow. what is their followership engagement look like on across these different you know social channels? Uh, but for us also, there's a lot of influencers who perhaps are really good at imagery, perhaps are really good at little TikTok bits. For us, we need to find the ones that resonate, but also have something to say. Yeah. And we generally find that people have something to say if they're elite at a platform like YouTube or they're elite at a platform like a Spotify or an Apple podcast. So um, we're using every one of those three buckets, you know, the the legends, uh, whether it's the athletes, the journalists, or the, you know, the internet stars. And we're also seeing this influx of athletes that didn't have to go through Idaho because they had a great athletic career and they learned how to use their own social media to get their voice out there. So we're seeing more athletes entering the space as well. No, it's brilliant. I love, I love the way to find, I mean, I used to sit in my office and get, sit there watching tapes and just trying to absorb and trying to predict and and figure out somebody's future for this and their voice and everything. And I used to love that process because it really felt like you were, you were trying to find that person you wanted to ride with, you know, like try to bring somebody in that you were like, I believe in them. And I think there's something here we can work with. And that's a, that's a pretty fun feeling to get part of, of and get some momentum with. It's awesome, man. And, and I happen to think that we work, I get to work with the people in the industry that are the best in the world at doing it. I mean, yeah. my boss, one of my bosses, Brad Zager, think about last year, he's brought in Derek Jeter and Tom Brady. Not bad. I mean, we're going to have a pregame show on baseball with Alex Rodriguez, Big Poppy, and Derek Jeter. I mean, Not bad. that could just be the game. It's just watching them for three hours. So, yeah. You know, I get to work with the people like, you know, Brad and my boss, Charlie, and, you know, they're just the best in the world at bringing these enormous personalities yeah. um, and getting to ask them questions like, how did you know this person would be good? I mean, obviously they were good on the field, but how do you know they'd be good here? Yeah. So often it's like, you should see them walk in a room. They yeah. dominate the room. They yep. dominate the room in a way that you couldn't possibly imagine until you're in the room with them. And they just know. Ah, love that. It's, it's so... It makes so much sense. Yeah. As you look in growth sectors in our industry and in sports, it feels like there's more eyes than ever on women's sports. And you guys have yeah. the Women's World Cup this summer. Yeah. Philosophically, do you feel like there's been that breakthrough that it feels like is happening with women's sports? And is that a big opportunity moving forward? Because I don't know, my family has been more excited about the Women's World Cup this summer than anything in a long time, which is kind of cool to see. Ah, uh, it's awesome. I mean, they're going for a three-peat. Yeah. One of the greatest dynasties of all time. I think Fox plays a really interesting role in this because, you know, we're not a company that I've learned since I've been here. We're not, we're not out there bragging in the media every day about what they've done and what they've accomplished. But I know internally they're really proud that, and I think it was what, 2015 Vancouver Women's World Cup. Yeah. They put more U.S. Women's National Team games on network television than any media company has ever put. You know, I think every year that we've had the Women's World Cup, we've increased that number put more U.S. Women's National Team games on television, specifically network television, than any company ever has. So that first finals in, what, 
2015 Vancouver USA versus Japan to this day ranks as the highest viewed soccer match in American history, men or women, wow. with 25 million viewers. That's it. Game over. The drought is over. The U.S. wins the 2015 Women's World Cup. So, you know, we've had men's World Cup since then. We've had incredible finales like, you know, France versus Argentina, Kylian Mbappe versus Leo Messi, and nothing has touched that Japan-USA wow. number. So, you know, at Fox, there's definitely a pride internally. I don't know if this is felt externally, but there's definitely a pride internally about this amazing launch from that 2015 Vancouver uh, finals into the U.S. winning it in the next Women's World Cup. Um, and, and now, you know, having this opportunity to go for, for, for the three-peat in Australia, New Zealand, which is coming up in a month. So, you know, Fox is pretty proud of that. And uh, rightfully so. You know, I joined after that finals, but I think they should be. Uh, yeah, rightfully so. And I think it will be an exciting summer. And it's, it's, it's really neat to see some of the numbers on the NWSL, the WNBA, and some yeah. of the, just the growth of women's sports, because I think it's something we should all get behind and support and be excited for. So, you know, not only do we invite that audience, but when you're covering the Women's World Cup, you need to bring in experts. And, you know, I look up now and I'm thinking about it like our head of content for soccer is Fran Arthur, who played in the NWSL. You know, our head of operations, Rachel Sullenberger, was a D1 athlete at, you know, soccer at the University of Oregon. So, you know, it doesn't just impact the fans. It doesn't impact the, the product on the camera, but the people behind the camera are more reflective of the product as well. Ah, that's great. That's so wonderful. All right. I want to be respectful of your time. So we'll finish up with this. I could go on and on and on. As you're probably getting the vibe, I have a lot of questions, but uh, <laughs> no we'll finish problem. up with this. Let's just pretend for a second that tomorrow you're going to go in and talk to a college class and there's 200 kids there. Yeah. And they look to you and they say, okay, so what are those couple traits or what are those couple skills or what are those couple things I should really be focused on right now to make yep. me attractive to this industry? How am I going to get to stand out amongst that landscape? What advice would you give them? What do you think are those instrumental things? Like we said, when we were coming up, it was, you know, nonlinear editing, Final Cut Pro, it was Photoshop, those kind of things. What are those yeah. things today that are just so instrumental to stand out in this, in this competitive landscape? Yeah, well, I think the first thing is that back then you could download the software, but there wasn't much you could do about it. Like I put mine That's on, point. like buckling at Blogspot, no one ever looked at it. But nowadays you have the ability, and it does require being brave, and it does require putting yourself out there. But not only do you have access to these tools, more production tools than anyone has ever had, whether you want to write and put it on a Tumblr, or whether you want to create designs and put it on an Instagram, whether you want to create short form content and put it on TikTok, or do a podcast like, like you're doing, you put it everywhere. You can put the full length on audio, put the full length on YouTube. You can chop it up and put it on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and you name it. There's never been more opportunities to show off your skills, your what you've learned, and you should do it. And we've essentially, when we go and talk to people, we always look for examples of work. Yeah. And if there's no examples of work, it either means that you don't have examples of work or you're not willing to put yourself out there. Either way, I'd rather someone submit a resume that says, hey, I think I'm pretty good at design and then just have five links to their work because I'll learn more about clicking those links and, and seeing you know, what they've done more than I'll ever learn by the words that they share with me in that email. I also think that you, know, you hear people joke about this all the time. It's, it's not you know, what you know, it's who you know. It's definitely what you know, but who you know is also pretty valuable. You should be knocking doors down. And you should be figuring out a way to get in because everyone who's ever applied for a job has been in the catch 22 of they want experience, but how do I get experience if I don't get a job? I can't get a job because I don't have experience. Well, again, with the ability to share content to your own personal social media, your own personal website or blog, you have the opportunity to get experience now. Yeah. So you have that part checked off on the what you know. Uh, I would also use the internet, use LinkedIn, use social media, use friends that you know, use distant uncles and cousins and find a way to meet some people in the industry. Because if you can meet a couple people, they can give you a couple tips. And early on, those tips go so far, or just in a world where you're getting, you know, completely overwhelmed with introductions and resumes and LinkedIn messages. It helps so much just to have the name of someone you both know in there. It just helps you cut through. It's just it a does. reality. And I think about some of the ones that I've responded to, um, being in, in the fortunate spot of getting to look at a lot of talented candidates. 
there's always something that grabs your eye. That's one. And two is it's always pointing to really, really good examples of work. Yeah. So those are probably the two. Uh, something else we covered earlier, have a real strong understanding of the company that you're speaking to. I've seen so many times I'm interviewing someone or someone on my team is interviewing someone and they refer to one of our shows by the wrong name, or yep. they refer to the talent by the wrong name, or they yep. misspell the show or the talent, or they're talking about a sport and you just tell they don't know their stuff. Like you got to be buttoned up. And the other thing we talked about earlier, study the business, have an understanding of what they're doing, have an understanding of examples of good work that they've done so that when they ask you, why do you want to work for Fox Sports? You have a really good answer that shows you did your homework, that shows you're passionate. And I think that if you can put those things together, you know, have some sort of connection that helps open a door, have great examples of work, know the industry and really know the company that you're applying for. I think you'll have a much better chance at least catching their interest and letting them, uh, encouraging them to hear you out. Then if you come in and you don't have those things. Uh, we we couldn't stop on a on a better spot because that was really <laughs> great, great, great advice. And it's the actionable stuff. That's what we're looking for, right? We want to yeah. be able to give somebody something they can do. We're not just speaking theoretically. It's like, go build your skill set, go network with people and get to know them. Combine those two things into who you know and what you know, and you're going to yeah. be much more powerful out there. And And I love that you're looking for people that are willing to stick themselves out there a little bit and to be vulnerable and to be brave. I think that's really important in this and that, you know, that's what cuts through a lot of the noise. So, so much, so much great advice. Uh, I feel like we could go on a lot longer, but I'm going to spare you all my random questions and just say thank you because that was awesome. Thank you, Michael. Well, thanks for having me, Brian. I appreciate the mission of this of this podcast to help people get into the industry, help navigate the industry. And uh, a thank you to Sean Merriman, who is a fan of yours, listens to your pod, and I think it was his idea to make this happen. It was. So. Thank you to Sean. He reached out to me and said, would you like to have on Michael Buckland? I'm like, yes, please. Can we make this happen? So thank you, Sean. I totally agree. And I'm so glad we were able to do this. Thank you, Michael. Awesome. Thanks, Brian. All right. Thank you for riding along with that interview. I know it was a long one, but I had so many questions I wanted to ask Michael and he nailed all of them. There were so many great experiences and, and knowledge drops there. I love that he was focused on skills-based hiring. I think that's so important for all of you. I love that he focused in on, on networking and building yourself and putting yourself out there and working on your personal brand. It's all there for you. Go grab it. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks to Michael for coming on. I'll see you all next week.